Thanks for joining us for the podcast version of this message. It's a great blessing for us to have you subscribe to our program, and we hope you're enjoying it. This podcast version contains an additional seven minutes of audio, including a series recap of seven things every church should excel at and a longer introduction. When I was growing up, there was an ad campaign for Smarties Candies that asked the viewer how they preferred to eat Smarties and which colors they'd eat first. I'm reminded of that ad campaign when I'm thinking about all the different ways people pray. Some close their eyes and bow their heads and pray silently. Others are loud and boisterous and pray loudly. And for many people, there's an awkwardness about prayer. It can feel unnatural and exposing. This is Christ is the Answer, the weekly audio program from the Seaview Full Gospel Church in beautiful Back Bay, New Brunswick. I'm your host today, Robin Monks. On today's program, Pastor Randy dives deeper into the power behind prayer and why it can feel unnatural or in opposition to our default nature. Even if you're only a little curious about prayer, I'd encourage you to listen today, as there's a lot of great detail here to be examined. To get us started, here's Pastor Randy Crozier. I began a series of messages addressing things that every church should excel at. Specifically, eight items that it doesn't matter where you're at in the world, it, it doesn't matter what the, the ethnic context or you know, what the uh, spiritual tradition, uh, even within the broad context of Christianity is, there are definitely, arising from the Word of God, eight things that every church should do really, really well. And if you look around the room, you can see them displayed. Prayer, reliance on the Holy Spirit, faithful proclamation, incarnational activity, intentional discipleship, compassionate congregational care, responsible stewardship, and great church. Simply on the basis of those statements, that may not have much to say to you, but we'll unpack them in the weeks to come. Now, we talked about uh, loving God and, and, and loving people as a beginning. And the thing is that all of these eight things are ultimately an expression of a mission that's given to us by Jesus Christ. This isn't meant as criticism, but lots of churches spend a great deal of time and invest a lot of energy in exploring together, you know, what their mission is going to be. But I think that uh, in our case, uh, that when you look at the great commandment and Jesus says you need to love God and you need to love people that you have on the authority of Christ, the mandate, and that's our mandate. That's our mission. It can be summed up in these two things, that we want to love God and we want to love people. And every one of these things, these eight items that are on display around the room are ultimately a projection of one or the other of these two things. They're either about loving God in some way or they're about loving people in some way. You know, Jesus, when he was speaking to the Pharisee who had asked him the question, you know, Master, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds, after he says that you'll love God with everything you've got and you'll love your neighbor as yourself or you'll love people, then he makes this statement that kind of fetches them up because it, you know, uh, kind of foils their plot uh, for, we uh, went into this last week, foils their plot trying to trip him up in his words. He said, on these two commandments hang all of the commandments, which is to say that every commandment in the Word of God is ultimately a projection or an expression of one of these two things. Every command either has to do with loving God or it has something to do with loving people. And you know, nothing really has changed. 
That uh, principle laid down by Christ uh, endures. And it's still the fact that everything that we do, everything that God expects of us, every act of obedience in relation to the Word of God really has something to do with one of these two things. It's either uh, a projection or expression of the fact that we love God, or it's a projection and expression of the fact that we're loving on people. And so eight things spread around the room uh, reflect that concept this morning. I I said to you that these things, these eight things, are like the uh, cylinders uh, in a motor. That all eight cylinders really have to be firing. You can't say, well, we're going to invest ourselves primarily in faithful proclamation. Now, certainly, we are about going into all the world and preaching the gospel and sharing with people the great news that Jesus Christ died to make a way for us to have peace with God. If all of these things are a projection in one way or another of one of the two greatest commandments, then each of them needs to be given adequate attention. So we can't be firing on, you know, uh, three cylinders or Four cylinders, six cylinders, or even seven cylinders. If a vehicle is only firing on a limited number of cylinders when it's designed for eight, then obviously it's not functioning properly. So if we're faithfully proclaiming the gospel, but we are indifferent to embodying the love of God in the things that we do, or if we're all about having a great time in church, but we're not intentionally discipling people, or we're not expressing you know, compassionate care for one another without drawing lines in the sand, then something is wrong. There is a need for us to look in a holistic manner at who and what we are as a congregation and start to say, we are going to examine ourselves and we are going to endeavor by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to be everything that we need to be. And therefore, these things should be our vision. These are the things that we aspire to be. And so we begin to ask ourselves, how are we doing in relation to our mission when it comes to loving God and loving people? And in regard to the specific component parts, what's happening with faithful proclamation? How well are we getting on? What's going on with intentional discipleship? What are we doing as a church to follow through on that? Or with regard to great church or prayer or reliance on the Holy Spirit and and looking at ourselves and giving ourselves a critical assessment. So this is um, uh, where we're heading and, and, and where we're going. And I won't go through all of that the same, to the same degree each week. But this morning, I want to talk to you about prayer. We want to be a house of prayer. So let's ask the Lord to bless His Word this morning. Father, as we begin looking at this truth, this, this great and wonderful truth that resounds through the length of Your Word, we ask, Lord, that You, by Your Holy Spirit, would bring conviction into our hearts. Lord, we don't want to simply sit here this morning and, and uh, you know, uh, hear a bunch of stuff and be overwhelmed with some information. But Father, we invite you, Lord, through the power of your living word and through, Lord, the work of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to penetrate deep into our hearts, bring conviction that results in transformation as we respond to you. In specific, Lord, we want to become a much more prayerful people. We want to become a people who have a better understanding of both the purpose and the power associated with prayer. And we, Lord, want to become prayers. 
Not just knowledgeable about prayer, not simply informed, but Lord challenged, Lord, to take the steps so that we as a church become defined by this. That when people look at us, one of the things that they will say is, that's a church, that's a group of people that prays, thereby relies on you. We ask you, Lord, to work these things, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, this morning in Jesus' name. You know, prayer conflicts and it collides with the fallenness of our nature. And also with what we have learned under the direction and supervision of the world. You see, prayer is alien and it's really even insulting to our basic or fundamental hubris. We are proud creatures. One of the reasons we struggle so with works over against grace is that it's really difficult for us to come to terms with the idea that we are not contributory to our own redemption. Our pride rises up against that. And for a similar reason, we are also inclined to think that, well, prayer really cannot be the answer because prayer ultimately dictates that we have to cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. We have to look to Him from whom comes all ultimate blessings and we have to rely on Him to dispense those blessings or pour out those blessings upon our hearts and our lives. So prayer is fundamentally alien to our pride. It cuts across uh, the jib of our fundamental self-reliance. You see, we are uh, taught the rules and the principles of self-reliance from the time that we're young. Well, we're born with it anyway. There's just something in us, some aspect, as I've indicated, of our fallenness. But in addition to that that impulse that arises within us because of our uh, fallen nature, then we are conditioned throughout the length of our lives uh, to believe that self-reliance is a virtue. You know, we struggle and we scramble through the days of our lives to achieve a measure of independence. And prayer really flies in the face of that. Prayer is an assault on human autonomy. Prayer is an indictment against self-sufficient living. And we are inherently self-sufficient. Or at least Whether we, you know, some of us are more inclined to lean on others, but at the end of the day, whether we're leaning on ourselves or we're leaning on another human being, we are typically disinclined to lean on God. You know, we're like uh, Egypt, and Egypt uh, has this tremendous history with the Lord. He has uh, Egypt has this tremendous history. Excuse me, Israel. We're like Israel. Israel has this fabulous history of God's intervention. And then in times of crisis, what happens? They go out and they engage or they enter into inappropriate alliances with worldly powers. And God brings an indictment against them through the prophets. And in one case, he says, you know, that Egypt, that Egypt is like a a broken stick. And if you lean on Egypt, you know, all that's going to happen, it's going to pierce your hand. You're going to live to regret it. And he was saying this specifically to Israel, who instead of uh, relying on God, goes out and enters into this alliance. And so we're of a nature to look for alliances and support and strength, like Israel did in places outside of God. And we'll live to regret it. You know, the world in, in general lives to regret it, but particularly in the family of God, once we've known Christ, we will live to regret it if we uh, put our, our, our weight or we rest ourselves on something other than the mercy and the strength and the blessing and the goodness of God. Now, that mercy and that blessing is, is often expressed through means and not just miracles, and sometimes it's the people around us who, you know, God uses, and there's other, but at the end of the day, our confidence has to be in the Lord and not in the people. 
And God may choose to uh, uh, use people. He may choose to use you know, any number of things to bless us. But our confidence as believers has to be placed in God. And so that translates into being prayerful people. People who, who bring our needs to the Lord. You know, we've, we've been taught to, to live in the fast lane. We've been taught that uh, to do so is actually virtuous. You know, to go headlong and scramble in the direction of whatever our goals are, you know, with great gusto and, and vigor. And, and we're taught that, well, you know, this is virtuous. But the thing is, what's really virtuous is when we step out of the headlong rush and the scramble and the frantic race to acquire or get or do or achieve or accomplish, what's truly virtuous is when we can step back from that and we can fall on our knees, lower our heads, and fix our gaze on God instead. Now, that's hard for us. That challenges us because, you know, we've been conditioned to believe, really, to uh, do that is perhaps an inappropriate utilization of time. Nobody knows whether this is, it's, it's been reported for ages that this is the case, but you know, whether it really is true or not. But there's a story that has circulated for years and years that, that on an occasion, Martin Luther, you know, the Protestant uh, reformer, the father of the Protestant Reformation, that Martin Luther was one day asked, you know, how much do you have to do today? And his response was, work, 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 work. He said, I've got so much work to do that I'm going to have to spend the first three hours of the day just praying. And you see how that doesn't necessarily true up with our conception of how to deal with labor? We think the more we have to do, the less time we have to spend in devotion, the less time we have to spend in, in, in appearing before the Lord. But Martin Luther had arrived or reached a place in his life where he understood that engagement with God reliance on God, finding strength uh, through God, looking for answers to questions through the Lord, all of these things, that this is really where it's at. So we're conditioned to believe that being in the race and raging along and running and doing and going and, you know, just pouring ourselves into a thing, that that's where it's at, that that's character, that's virtue, that's a good work ethic. And to say that we're going to step out of that, that we're going to, you know, leave off the race and we're going to find places of solitude and places of silence and be with the Lord. Oh, well, something begins to tremble inside of us. Can we afford to do that? But when you really understand, when you begin to, to take in the big picture, how can you afford not to do that? How can we afford to live in any other way? Taking time to practice prayer, either as individuals, or uh, uh, as a, a church requires a big decision. It requires that we veer off the path that we're on under the influence of our basic nature and the path that we're on because we've been educated into it, the frantic path that we're on because we've been educated into it by the world and choosing a different way. Becoming a prayerful people. Seeking God. Now, you know, sometimes the thing is, before we are ever uh, going to reach a place where we seek the grace to make that decision, and then the further grace from God to actually act on that kind of a decision, to veer off the path that's typical, and to choose a better way, then really it, it's helpful for us uh, to uh, understand something about both the purpose and the power of prayer. I want to talk to you about three different things relative to prayer. Look at prayer from three different directions. Prayer in pursuit of intimacy with God. Prayer in pursuit of spiritual excellence. And prayer as a means of cooperating with God. So prayer in pursuit of intimacy with God. 
or maybe put it this way, prayer as a response to God's persistent desire to have close fellowship with us. So you know, according to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. And what does that mean? What that means is that God kept close and intimate company with them. That they enjoyed an uninterrupted, undisturbed, unbroken unity and togetherness with God. That was the state in which they lived. How marvelous really that is. When you stop a moment and you begin to reflect on the wonder of that situation, instead of simply blowing by it, that God walked with Adam and Eve, that they strolled through this place, in this unbroken, absolutely perfect, undisturbed, uninterrupted intimacy with God. That, that really was humankind's finest hour, when you think about it. That was the apogee, the height, the zenith, the acme of our existence. We were never any better than we were right then. And then what happens? Then sin is introduced into the equation. And, 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 and what does the Bible say that, that took place? It says that, that uh, God comes walking in the garden. In the cool of the day, anticipating, you know, fellow, now we can get into omniscience and all of that, but that's not the point. That's, that God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and uh, what happens? When Adam and Eve realize that God is present, did they run out to take advantage of this splendid, this marvelous, this unprecedented fellowship that they've enjoyed with God? No, the Bible says in verse 8, that uh, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, they intuitively understood that because of what they had done, that it was no longer going to be possible for them to enjoy that marvelous, magnificent, unbroken, undisturbed, uninterrupted intimacy with God. And really, that's the most tragic event that has ever befallen humankind. I mean, we've got a history full of tragedy. But if you're looking, if you're trying to identify, you know, looking at the history of mankind, what is the worst thing that has ever befallen the human race? This is it right here. We lost intimacy with God. We lost that unbroken, uninterrupted togetherness and unity with Him. Now, I want you to notice something about the story. Notice who goes looking for who. The Bible says that the man and the woman, they hid themselves in the bushes. But what does it say in verse 9? The Lord God called to the man. You've got to think about it for a minute. This is a powerful thing. This says something absolutely essential about the true heart and nature of God. The Lord, he, understood, he knew what was going on. This is an omniscient being. This is God. He knows everything. But the Bible says that the Lord God called to the man and he said, Where are you? Who initiates contact? Who was it in this story who wanted to restore or recover fellowship? It's the heart of God. While man and while Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes, God is saying, where are you? Where are you? Notice, too, who it was that took the initiative to shed the first representative atoning blood. 
Verse 21, and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. So here's the thing. In spite of having willfully rejected him, in spite of having made a deliberate decision to go down a road or follow a path that was contrary to God's specific instruction, God did not give up on his desire to have fellowship with them. And God has actively, aggressively, persistently, and relentlessly been pursuing us ever since. God wants fellowship with us. Of course, the highest expression of his willingness and of his passion to connect with us was expressed when he came deep into the filth and the muck and the mire of this world. In John 1 verses 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, God, became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God Almighty, so passionate in his yearning to reestablish a relationship, a connection with us, leaves the splendor. Go to Philippians and read what Paul has to say, you know, and all who receive him. Verses 12 through 13. To those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. See, What does all that got to do with prayer? Prayer is about responding favorably to God's passionate pursuit of us. It starts with a sinner's prayer. People craft in different ways, and there's lots of debate about, you know, whether, you know, so, and yes, there's no phrase or terminology in the Bible that says, you know, anything about a sinner's prayer. But this is what what Paul uh, has to say in Romans 10, uh, 9 through 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and you are saved. So whether or not the language is there or whatever the specific arrangement of the words should be, you have Paul saying there is a need for us to express our interest to God, to confess our recognition of Him as Redeemer, and look to Him for that experience of rescue from sin. And that's the very first and most fundamental of all prayers that any human being needs to make. You know, we initiate through prayer reconnection with God. But you see, that's not where it stops. You know, when we come to Christ uh, and we, we first say that sinner's prayer, then all of a sudden, the single most significant loss that human beings ever sustain begins to be rolled back. It begins to be repealed in our lives. We are readmitted to a relationship with God. A connection is reestablished. And so then what does prayer become? Prayer, ongoing prayer, before and ahead of everything else that prayer has to do with is about us having the opportunity day by day by day to deepen that connection. You see, I I told you or I mentioned to you that when we walked with God in the cool of the day, that we were at the zenith of our experience, that we were at our best. Why? Because that's the only time in all of the history of mankind that we were fully realized human beings. You see, we are made for unity with God. We are made for fellowship with God. And outside of that experience, we are broken creatures. We are less than whole always uh, until we have that thing restored to us. And when we say that prayer, when when we first pray and we indicate 
you know, we respond favorably to God's passion to reunite with us through Jesus Christ, then something not just is done and, and over, something is begun. We begin to have an opportunity to just begin to deepen and deepen and deepen that relationship with Him, uh, to spend more time with Him. You see, we enter into a dialogue, a conversation with God, and that's what prayer is ultimately about. It's about our taking the opportunity again to walk with God in the cool of the day, to be with Him, to fellowship with Him, and we need it desperately. We get this idea that there, there are people we need in our lives or things we need in our lives. Well, I want to tell you something. There is nobody, but nobody that you need in your life more than you need God. And I don't mean salvation, period. I mean on an ongoing basis. We need an intimacy with Him. We need a connection with Him that begins to you know, enhance the quality of our lives. We cannot be whole apart from that experience. We cannot be fulfilled. We can't enjoy the good life. People talk about the good life. And it's not the American way, folks. It's not whatever the Canadian vision of a great life is. The good life is what God defines. The good life cannot be experienced outside of fellowship with Him. We were meant for it from the beginning. And we need to return to it. And prayer is our opportunity to recover intimacy with God. You know what? The thing about prayer, the most fulfilling thing about prayer, is not that you get to tick off something on your divine to-do list today. I prayed. The most fulfilling thing about prayer is not that you get miraculous answers. I mean, everybody loves miraculous answers. But the most fulfilling thing about prayer is not that you get miraculous answers. The greatest thrill that attends a life of prayer is the qualitative difference that it makes in our relationship with God. That's by far the most sublime and beautiful thing about prayer. Prayer is not only a pursuit of intimacy with God. Prayer is also a pursuit of spiritual excellence or a pursuit of health and spiritual vitality. You know, I think most of us uh, realize that some of the world's greatest athletes are people who are born with a predisposition in the direction of competing in athleticism. Some of us just don't have it. I mean, it just doesn't make a difference. You could do what you want to do. You're never going to turn me into a first-class athlete in any field or any sport. I just wasn't born with it. There are some people, on the other hand, they are born with a natural predisposition or an inclination in the direction of athleticism. They are fundamentally good at uh, sports. You know, they have a leaning or a facility or a knack or a genius, and you call it whatever you want, in that direction. But, you know, every successful athlete, the most successful athletes, and every trainer or coach who works with successful athletes will tell you that in no uncertain terms is a predisposition in the direction of athleticism enough to make you great. It may be prerequisite, but in and of itself, it will never make you great you got to train. You can have the most significant inclination in the direction of hockey that anybody was ever born with. But if you do not engage in a rigorous regimen of daily development and training, you will never play in the NHL. It's never going to happen. you got to train. You've got to submit yourself or subject yourself to certain disciplines that bring development into your life, that supplement whatever your fundamental or basic inclination is. You know you watch great hockey players, right? 
And they get out there on the ice and they're playing the games at uh, the game and their bodies just seem to do the right thing. They, they, they skate the right way. They handle the puck with such ease and grace and they just seem to know where to be or they know where to pass or they know when to score. It all seems so fluid and it all seems so easy. But you understand, don't you? You know that, you know, that isn't something that came to them because, well, they were just born that way. In fact, it doesn't come to them just because they play the game. We watch the games through the course of the season and we see it. But their engagement with the sport isn't confined to that. They're spending hours and hours and hours under discipline in order to get to that place where they play so exquisitely. They're under discipline. When we're born the second time, when we're born again, we are born with a fully awakened aptitude for the Lord. We're born with an inclination in us to lead lives that honor Him, to lead lives that please Him. John refers to the experience both as born again and born of the Spirit. So the minute you come to Christ, there is introduced into you this new nature. And this nature has a bent in the direction of honoring God. The problem, however, is that with the introduction of the new nature, there doesn't come an eviction of the old. And so what happens is now there is inside of you, if you're a believer, a competition going on. There are two natures, one with a bent in the direction of God and one with a bent in the direction of all things outside of God, predominantly in the direction of self. And there's a struggle that goes on inside of us. Paul describes the struggle. In Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, he says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to the laws of God, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And then dropping down to Galatians, he says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sin nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite what the sinful nature desires. And these two forces are constantly fighting each other. So there he goes. Pretty uncertain terms. Paul says that there's this struggle going on inside of us. So the question comes then, which one wins? Well, whichever one is most thoroughly and efficiently nurtured. Whichever one is trained best. And, and so what do we do to train ourselves spiritually? We practice disciplines, spiritual disciplines, just like a hockey player has to engage in rigorous disciplines in order to be successful on the ice, in order to make those exquisite plays and, and to just to be there and we have to see ourselves trained and disciplined in a spiritual manner. Prayer is a spiritual discipline. In fact, prayer is the queen of all spiritual disciplines. There are many. But among them, prayer is, is prime. And the Christian uh, who hopes to live Christianly in the world without spiritual disciplines, without a, a life of prayer, is as naive as a hockey player who thinks that he's going to become an NHL player if he doesn't practice or he doesn't train. So 
What is prayer about? Well, prayer is about establishing an intimacy with God. But prayer is also a discipline that results in or leads to vigor in our spiritual lives. It leads to the kind of health and vitality that enables us to be all that Christ wants. We have a mandate here, folks. We have responsibilities in this world. We're not just here you know, to have a party and a good time. We're the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head. His mission is the same. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. We're here to execute on that same mission. And if we're going to do it, we can't afford to be sick. There needs to be a vitality and a vigor and a spiritual health in our lives. And one of the things that helps us to get to that place where we've got that vitality, we've got that vigor, or we've got that excellence in play, like an athlete, is that we know how to practice the spiritual disciplines. If you don't think that, uh, you know, that's appropriate for you, and understand this is not about uh, works, right? Because what the spiritual disciplines do is they simply put you in a place where you begin to experience grace in a fuller way. It's all still about the grace of God uh, that begins to unfold in our lives. But if for a moment you think, I don't see why that's a necessity, why we have to get all wrapped up in prayer or solitude or silence, meditation, you know, or all these different things that, that are disciplines in, 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 in the spiritual sense or in the spiritual context, well then look at the life of Christ. Apparently Jesus being the Son of God did not feel uh, that he was relieved in the, of the necessity of practicing spiritual discipline. The Bible says that after John baptized him, what did he do? He went out into the wilderness led by the Spirit, and he fasted and he prayed for 40 days, and it was after that that he enters into the cataclysmic conflict uh, with the enemy. Now, if you think, well, that was specific to that given circumstance, that he was going to be overwhelmingly tempted, or not overwhelmingly in his case, but he was going to be mightily tempted by the enemy, then go a little further. If you drop down to Mark chapter 1, 29 through 37, it begins to tell about the fact that he arrives at, at Peter's home, and Peter's mother isn't well, and he heals his mother. And then the Bible says there that people from the town begin to bring the house to the house all these people that needed ministry. And he begins to, to minister to them and bring healing into the their lives. And then it says, very early in the morning, the morning following all of this, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus regrouped and recharged through prayer, through the discipline of prayer. He brought vitality and health into his, into his heart and into his life. And here's an interesting thing. I think it's interesting that they come looking for him and they say, everybody's looking for you. And and it strikes me uh, that, uh, you know, Jesus would not allow the urgency of life and the cries and the pleadings of other matters to distract him. And it didn't matter that everybody was looking for him. He was still going to find time. And let me skip down uh, very quickly. And and I will say this, you know, if we think that we can get by with less than Christ did, then we are certainly mistaken. We are misguided uh, in that. Finally, you know, prayer on top of all of those things, prayer is our opportunity to cooperate with God. Jesus said, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will look at a mountain, paraphrasing, and it'll be cast into the sea as as, as a result of your faith, and you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. That's how he ends the, the statement, that if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Jesus wasn't in the moving mountains. I mean, literally. He wasn't in the excavation business. You know, mountains there are representative. Now, listen, if God needs to move a mountain, God can move a mountain. I mean, that's just, I, I have no, no doubt in my mind that anything God wishes to do, God can do. But typically, God doesn't just give us the opportunity, hey, we'll walk around and say, well, there's a mountain. Let's you know, express or demonstrate our faith and throw mountains into the sea. It, 
Mountains are obviously representative. They speak of experiences or challenges or obstacles that are large and immovable and that are beyond our ability and and just uh, things that we just can't possibly handle. And what is the Lord saying? He's saying that we access so much power in prayer that things that are impossible become possible. Things that are unconquerable become conquerable. We can begin to participate in the work of God in a way so that stuff begins to happen. We can see impossible projects realized. We can look at needs that loom so large that we wonder whether or not we'll ever see the light of day and we can see God move. We can dream dreams and have visions for the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ in the world that are outlandish by comparison to our time, our talent, or you know our treasure. But because we can go to God in prayer and see mountains cast into the sea, we have, through that opportunity to pray, a chance to cooperate with God in the fulfillment of his purpose, in the execution of his vision. So, here's the thing. Someone said this, prayer is to be understood as the first and the most important means afforded us by God of making tangible, useful, and meaningful contributions to any situation. And we are to understand that if we fail in prayer, we fail. It is the single most significant way God has given to us to make tangible, meaningful, and useful contributions to any situation. And if we fail in prayer, we fail. It is not a license to do nothing else besides, for sure. But anything we drew absent prayer or apart from prayer is destined to fail. Every Christian, uh, I believe it was Ian Bounds who said this, every Christian who does not make prayer a major part of his or her life, every church that does not make prayer a major part of its life and practice is weak as a factor in God's work and is powerless to move God's cause forward powerless to move God's cause forward. What the church needs today is not more ministry machinery. What the church needs today is not better, more, better, or richer organizations, bigger buildings, or bigger offerings. We can get by without all of that stuff. I'm not saying we should just reject it out of hand, but at the end of the day, we can get by without all of that stuff. What the church does need today is men and women who are mighty in prayer. And we are going nowhere. Prayer is not optional in any way. Prayer cannot be something that we kind of throw together from the leftovers after we've taken care of the business of life, after we've pursued our pleasure, or we've addressed or serviced all the other engagements and entanglements that the life that the world has to offer. Prayer needs to become something that's a priority. And so I close with this whether it's prayer in pursuit of intimacy with God or prayer in pursuit of spiritual health and vitality or prayer as a means of cooperating with God in the execution or fulfillment of His purpose. So this is us, right? We're not doing it. That's just the way it is. If we were, you don't have to believe me. I I can't see in your heart. I, I can't judge what you're doing on a personal level as an individual. Maybe you're the most prayerful person that's ever walked in shoe leather. But, you know, I can say this, as a church, as a community of faith, if this is, oh, it's back there. If this is one of the cylinders that we need to be firing on efficiently, then there's no spark, folks. And we're going nowhere. The best of our time, the heart of our time, the strength of our time needs to be given to prayer. Prayer first, activities second. And that needs to become the thing that defines us as a church. So, you know, it's up to us, the ball's in our court. I'm sorry I preached long, but I haven't preached over, so... The ball's in our court as a church. 
And we can aspire to all kinds. We can, we can have dreams. Oh my goodness, we can dream dreams that are just like crystal castles soaring into the sky. Just spectacular to contemplate. But we will never see those crystal castles if we're not a praying people. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned some things about prayer you've not heard before and will be able to apply that knowledge in your life. Today's message was trimmed slightly for radio. And if you want to hear this message again with some additional content that didn't make it to radio, you can do that on our website. It's at cviewfullgospel.com. Once you're there, you can also subscribe to our program as a podcast and get it delivered to your phone or tablet automatically every week. This program is a production of the Seaview Full Gospel Church, and if you want to leave us a message, you can do so on our website or by calling the church office at 506-755-3592. God bless, and remember, Christ is the answer.